This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 9th, 2015. This is The Gist. I'm Andrea Salenzi. Your regular host, Mike Pesca, is on a vacation. Henry, can you play Mike's official announcement? Well, it's been an interesting week and a long six months without a vacation for yours truly. Do you know that? It's been six months since I've had a vacation. Yes, I know. Just ask my assistant. That was Fox News host Megan Kelly's announcement that she was heading on vacation a few weeks ago. Trump supporters called it curiously timed and made unclever jokes like, you're fired. Some wondered if, in accordance with Leviticus 1528, she had taken two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest so he could atone before the Lord for blood coming out of her whatever. Trump himself told Newsmax TV, People were very, very surprised that all of a sudden she decided to go away for 10 or 11 or 12 days. After which a Fox spokesperson released this statement, quote, The conspiracy theories about Megyn Kelly's vacation rank up there with UFOs, the moon landing, and Elvis being alive. Have you ever noticed how denying something just adds to the very credibility of the thing you're denying? Sure, Mike Pesca was disappointed by the selection of Ben Higgins as the next Bachelor, but his vacation was very much planned. And yes, we read and favorited many of your tweets claiming to see Mr. Pesca in an alley behind the late show. Stephen Colbert, wearing a t-shirt that says understudy. But here's the thing. Unless it was a v-neck t-shirt, you probably saw his evil twin, Matt Pesca, because Mike never wears crewneck on vacation. And to suggest otherwise ranks up there with, I don't know, JFK's missing brain and the dangers of asbestos. Very safe. Definitely missing. Anyways, enjoy your vacation, Mike. You earned it. Today on the show, my teacher always said to spiel what I know. So to podcast town we go. But first, Maria Konnikova places an order at Katz's Deli, and we'll have what she's having. Are you okay? Oh. Yes, listeners, colleagues, grandma, we're discussing the female orgasm. Oh, oh, God. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It often seems like Mike Pesca knows everything. He knows a lot about flags and munitions and puns, deflategating. But I'll have you know there are a few things that I might know a little more about. Editing audio, Bachelor Nation, and the subject of today's Is That Bullshit? The many dimensions of a uh, female orgasm. Can you say that a little louder? Yes. The very natural, incredibly common happening of the female orgasm. 
And to help us all get comfortable with this topic, I've invited Maria Konnikova into the studio for an intimate chat. Maria is one of the many guests who are going to join us at the GIST Live in Brooklyn this month. She's the author of The Confidence Game, available now for pre-order. Hello, Maria. Hey, Andrea. You look so fresh from vacation. But to clear up the rumors, you were not on vacation with Mike Pesca. No, I was not. We were in two separate locations. You were also in California. What did you see there? Well, when I was in California, I met with a fascinating woman who happens to research something very close to our topic today. Her name is Nikki Prousey, and she works in sexuality and sexual pleasure. And she's female, and so she has a specific interest in something known as the elusive female orgasm. Is it real? Your question is actually quite legitimate, because if you look at the literature, you would think, well, male ejaculation, of course, you know, it happens. There's so much that's been written on it. We know so much about the physiology, about why it happens, about how we can make it happen. We know all of this stuff. And then when you go to the female version, there's an awfully big gap. And the only data that we've had for many, many years has been all sociological, self-report, basically bullshit. Well, don't worry. I studied it myself. I googled how many kinds of female orgasms are there, and my top Google result told me that there are 11 kinds. There's the clitoral, the vaginal, the G-spot, the squirting, the A-spot, the deep spot, the U-spot, the breast orgasm, the oral orgasm, which is not what you'd think, the skin orgasm, and don't forget the mental orgasm. There's also a foot orgasm. Don't forget that. Basically, our bodies are so mysterious to people. Why is this the Wild West? And why was that my top result? I think that that's an incredibly important way of looking at the question. Because what we know, and something that I've learned from my conversations with Nikki Prousey, is that A lot of people love to write about female orgasms. I mean, every single month, right, you have the cover of Cosmo, the cover of every single magazine you can think of. Back in our day, you know, there was YM. Back in my day, I'm going to date myself here. (laughs) 17 magazines. 17, exactly. They all love to talk about female orgasms. And writers love to write about what you can do to experience orgasm, what you're doing wrong, how to get it right. And none of this is based in actual experience. A lot of what you see in popular culture isn't actually real. And what we do know is that it seems like there are two types. This is going to be terrible. We need to stop for one second. Is it clitoral or clitoral? Okay, we're back. (laughs) There has been common wisdom for a long time that women can be stimulated through the clitoris and that gives rise to a clitoral orgasm, or through penetration, and that gives rise to a vaginal orgasm. Traditionally, because people are traditionalists, they have liked to argue that the latter, the penetration, is better somehow, because the former you can do on your own, God forbid. It just opens up female sexuality to way too much bad stuff. And that's really been what people have always tried to prove, that somehow vaginal orgasm is superior. But when people started studying this, two things very quickly became clear. One, women can't really differentiate that well. Like when you ask for self-report, they can't tell you what kind of an orgasm they had. They can't tell you what feels better. Like they actually don't really know because there are two different physiological signatures. 
One of them involves the front part of the clitoris, the other the anterior part and some vaginal walls. And that's probably why it's so hard to differentiate because the clitoris is actually involved in both. Yeah. The clitoris isn't just the little man on the canoe. No. It's a whole muscle thing. It is. And there's also the kind of the top of the clitoris, the the cap that's kind of on top, which ends up being one of the most sensitive areas and one of the most reliably easy to create orgasm in a laboratory. So in the recent studies that have tried to do this, they all use vibrators, um, and they've been calibrated over many months of very painful research to try to figure out how can we reliably bring a woman to orgasm inside a lab. Can this watched pot really boil? Yes. It ends up that the watched pot can boil quite effectively. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we just testing for the women who have a thing for worrying machines that make them think of dying and medical (laughs) observation? Aren't those the people who are actually studying here? In these early studies, we do have a very big problem of selection bias, obviously, because these have to be women and men who are comfortable coming into a lab. And no one's watching them at the time. But they're strapped to a table, and they have a vibrator on their genitals, and they can't really move, and then they stay there while their brain waves are monitored. I feel um, like we should add an asterisk to all research that says <laughs> these are the people who we found these results Right, in. exactly, exactly. So there are these two kinds of female orgasms. As the far one as that, we know. As far as we know, <laughs> the clitoral and then the less clitoral, also somewhat vaginal. Which one's better? There's no evidence that one is better than the other. No matter how much people want to say that the mostly vaginal one is better because there's more of a chance that little babies will come from it, there's no evidence that the pleasure that women experience in the body or the brain differs between the orgasms. This is not to say that there's no difference for any women. I'm sure that for some women, there are individual differences and one is preferred to the other. And that also comes to your point about the complexity of the female orgasm. There are lots of different associations. And so some of the things aren't just physiological. I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that women are more complicated when it comes to orgasm than men. And that's for a very simple reason, which is that men have visual evidence. Men know exactly what happens. You know, they see ejaculation happen. Women have to rely on internal body cues. And so when you ask a man, how aroused are you? It's very easy. You look down, you see, how aroused am I? And you answer. And so you have a pretty good correlation. When you ask a woman, There's a lot of different things that she has to try to figure out to be able to answer that question. And it ends up there's a really cool study that blocked the man from having any visual evidence. And then it became just as impossible to to determine the level of arousal. Amazing. But wait, I thought women were these complicated orchids. Naomi Wolf told me this in her book, Vagina. She says that... The female orgasm isn't just about pleasure. It serves also as a medium of female self-knowledge and hopefulness, female creativity and courage, female focus and initiative, female bliss and transcendence. She goes on. So it can't be just as simple as is the dong rising for women. No, it's not. But it's not that simple for men either, by the way. And one of the things that I will say is most of what Wolf said sounds wonderful, but there's really no evidence for it. The one thing that we're starting to see is that the brain patterns that happen with orgasm in both men and women 
are quite similar to what happens in meditation. It kind of disrupts your thinking about anything. Basically, at the moment of orgasm, your brain just goes into this thoughtless state, which, you know, when she's talking about transcendence and bliss and a lot of these things, that dovetails very nicely with it. Um, Once again, very preliminary, only one or two studies that show this, but it's very intriguing. So... 70% of all women are left out of that. That's the number I always hear, right? So that number is absolute bullshit. First of all, it's taken from a sociological study of self-report that was done about 50 years ago. And people just bandy about this number without ever clarifying it. Well, what drives me nuts is that I've been hearing 70% for so many years. And I keep on wondering, wouldn't by now the sexual education would improve? More women would have access to internet porn. By now, wouldn't that number just you know, go down a little and more and, and more women no, would and learn no to one orgasm. Knows, and no one knows if that number was ever that high. I mean, once again, self-report, really, really bad. For men, too, by the way. Men don't like to admit that they're not aroused, just like women don't like to admit that they are aroused. So there, there are different expectations. You know, you have the macho man and you want the feminine woman who is only going to orgasm for her husband and not be promiscuous. And God forbid we ever have a female desire pill that makes women desire men a little bit too much. God forbid we actually created a female Viagra that worked. <laughs> yeah, no, God forbid. <laughs> Us Jezebel whores would just run all over the town. No, it would, be, it would be the apocalypse. It would be the apocalypse. At the same time, if I were to scroll through my list of female Facebook friends, I know of one who isn't able to orgasm. Yeah. And it's just part of her sexual life. And that's a problem that a lot of women do experience. So do men. For them, it's called erectile dysfunction. So for them, it's much easier to cure in the sense that you can often figure out what's going on physiologically. For women, it can be much more difficult because for women, a lot of their sexual response is predicated on desire and not just arousal. Women need a little context, a little setup. Yes. A little, you're the pizza delivery guy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We need a little story. And pizza, probably. And pizza. Pizza helps. Okay. So is this bullshit? Female orgasm is basically impossible to achieve, and only the most privileged, self-confident, beautiful, spiritually aware women can even come close to it, and an even more superior class of women can do it 11 different ways. Yes, this is absolutely true. Not bullshit at all. What? (laughs) That that is bullshit, Andrew. (laughs) Okay. And one more version. Is this bullshit? Squirting is a magical substance hidden inside of all women and has absolutely nothing to do with pee. That is bullshit. We didn't even get into squirting. There's actually no laboratory data on squirting. I tried to find some for you. But what we do know is that women sometimes do experience an urge to pee when when they reach orgasm and that that can be associated with squirting post-orgasm. However, we have no idea what the numbers are. We have no idea what anything is. So there's really nothing we can say at this stage about female ejaculation. Oh, I didn't even ask you about like the phenomenon of multiple orgasms. It's true. Um, It's real. Women can have multiple orgasms. From what we know, it seems easier to achieve multiple orgasms with penetration rather than clitoral stimulation. So not everyone is able to do that, but somehow it seems that it's more reliably the case that you can attain more with that type of intercourse. Maria Konnikova. (laughs) 
She's the author of The Confidence Game. And I can't wait for you to join us at the Bell House. What are we making you do there again? You are making me take questions from the audience while on stage and research them using nothing but my phone and then call bullshit. I can't wait. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you so much, Andrea. Do I get to drink before? <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we, we did sell out our VIP cocktail hour. Excellent. But there will be a, a trademark just cocktail there. So. Ooh. And now the spiel. TV on the radio. More like radio on the TV. When people ask me what I do as a podcast producer, I often compare myself to Roz from Frasier. We have Elliot on line three. Roz screened the calls for the Emerald City's radio psychologist, Dr. Frasier Crane. I'm listening. And oh, the doctor would get mad at her sometimes. What the hell are you doing? For washing her face in the studio. But at least you spared me the spectacle of flossing. (laughs) Thanks for reminding me I had corn. For letting a prank caller through. I'm 43. I was going to say my problem is I have a very young-sounding voice that people make fun of all the time. In that case, Macaulay Culkin. Got you, Dr. Doofus. Ross, can't you keep these pebbly-faced little maggots off the air? And when Kevin Bacon called, Frazier was so distracted by a personal matter, he let Roz take over. So, Vic, um, what's this trouble you're having with women? I don't know. You know, I have, I have a good job. I think I have a good personality. Of course, I made more money when I was modeling, but I'm doing okay at the law firm. Tell me more. Speaking of taking over, I'm Andrea Salenzi. This is The Gist. I'm not saying Roz is the reason I became a producer, but seeing a woman with technical expertise, a combative friendship with her host, who gets to eat candy at work, it had an impact. But will we ever have a podcast version of Frasier? I say no. When you see over-the-radio DJs on film and television, they are the wise voice of the people slash weather. Like in Do the Right Thing. Doing the yin and the yang, the hip and the hop, the stupid fresh thing, the flippity-flop. I have today's forecast for you. Hot! Or Robin Williams in... He also covered the weather. Weather out there today is hot and shitty, with continued hot and shitty in the afternoon. Tomorrow, a chance of continued crappy with a pissy weather front coming down from the north. And in the 1988 film Talk Radio. What do you want to talk about? Hmm? Baseball scores? Your pet? Orgasms? Yeah, I do. Or in the 1996 movie, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, Janine Garofalo gave veterinary advice over the radio. Name that caller. But you're saying he licked your face and now it's all gross, correct? Well, yeah. Okay, how long did this tongue bath last? Well, it started at one, went to two, went in. <laughs> about three hours. Oh, Dan. That was David Cross. In those examples, over-the-air radio looks great on screen because something live is happening. Like in the violent 90s rom-con, Gross Point Blank, the DJ played by Minnie Driver is surprised by her long-lost prom date, John Cusack. She turns it into a bit for her show. Let's go to the phones. You're on the air. 
Hi, Debbie. It's Gail. Oh, hi, Gail. You know, I wouldn't take him back yet. I'd make him jump through some hoops for a while, walk over hot coals, make him beg for it. Harsh. It's very harsh, Gail. Maybe we can discuss this in a more discreet setting. Beg like a, a beggar, you know. Come on. Next caller, you're on the air. The golden age of podcasting means it's about time us podcasters admit that our jobs look like the rest of white-collar America. We stare at computer screens all day. It's just like how architects aren't actually standing in front of the buildings with their arms spread wide. And genius ad men aren't having epiphanies in sunlit conference rooms. Advertising is based on one thing. Happiness. And scientists don't just make potions. This, this is arts, Mr. White. And I wouldn't want to see a movie about my job. Sending emails, Googling how to pronounce complicated words. Spiel. And of course, audio editing. That's another way podcasts are unfit for television. We're so carefully edited. When I'm working with Mike Pesca, I remove all the likes and ums. I shorten boring answers and edit out all those times Mike has confessed to murder. All of that goes on the cutting room floor. The IFC show Marin sure tries to make the making of a podcast seem interesting. The show depicts legendary podcaster Mark Marin and rotating celebrity guests having moments. But sometimes, even when they're taping a podcast, it's just a heavy-handed way of advancing the plot off-podcast, like with Dr. Drew. This podcast might not be posted because my internet is broken. There's nothing I can do about it because my internet company is a monopoly. And that is a lot like family, too. Is it? Or Caroline Ray. Oh, are you single again? Yes. What happened to that lovely little child that you were dating? Or Colt Cabana. Dude, I'm sorry. I'm crazy right now. I got a pilot I got to do, and I'm at the end of my rope, and it's just showbiz shit, and I'm not being fair to you. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm all right. Well, I mean, you're poisoning yourself. Just last year, Kevin Smith made a podcaster the star of his movie, Tusk. I don't want you to go to Canada tomorrow. It's for the podcast. It's what I do. A U.S. podcaster ventures into the Canadian wilderness to interview an old man who has an extraordinary past. <laughs> I'd tell you more about that one, but I can't get over my own stigma about a podcaster protagonist. And I'm a podcaster. I haven't watched it. I probably never will. But if I ever do, I'm going to root against him. In the TV show Big Bang Theory, the character Will has a podcast. But don't worry, his podcast is live. Yeah, so how many people listen? Most people download it later, but usually a few thousand people listen live. That makes no sense. They had to pretend podcasting can somehow be seamlessly blurred with live streaming, which aside from the best show and comedians who periscope, it's not a thing. Their writers know that a live audience makes radio making more interesting. Podcasting by nature interrupts that voodoo. While we wait for you to download, hit play, and all your different times and places and never together. Seeing the podcast be made gets in the way of the very thing I love about a podcast. I don't have to see anything. Podcasters don't even need the silver screen. If anything, TV and filmmakers are way more concerned about getting their own podcast now. Like our Panoply friend. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. The creative frontier I'm more concerned with is getting podcasts to sound more like television. Less interviews with your friends, more Walter White. Can we truly call this the golden age of podcasting if most of our programs would go on PBS or the History Channel? I want to hear HBO podcasts. I want to subscribe to the Mike Lee-directed podcast. 
But until we find a way to bring the cast to the screen or the screen to the cast, I have no idea how we'll make Mike Pesca more famous. But the gist is ready for its close-up. Are you a Gist listener in the New York City area? Then it's time to get your tickets for our live show at the Bell House, Tuesday, September 29th. Yeah, sure, you can wait for the podcast to come out. But you know what? We have things planned that aren't going to make it into the podcast. A.K.A. mistakes, jokes told too quietly, secret ingredients. Plus, your chance to compliment the outfits on Maria Konnikova, Adam Davidson, Chris Malamphy, Matthew Dix, Zoe Chase, and me. Go to slate.com slash nycgist. The Gist was produced today by Henry Malofsky, the star of the hit docudrama on FX called The Encoder, where he converts innocent waves to sophisticated MP3s. Happy birthday, happier podcast maker. We were edited today by Mike Bolo, the star of the new musical, Tin Pan Lexicon Alley, and the Gist executive producer, Andy Bowers. Moonlights as a head writer for an after-hours cartoon show about a friendly ghost with a filthy mouth. Explicit language warning. Our usual host is Mike Pesca, who, yes, it has finally been announced, will be coming to ABC this fall as the hostler. The hostler must select from 25 stunning interview subjects and find one regular guest. Will he pop the questions? The gist. We've been secretly saving up all those likes and ums for the day over-the-air radio goes extinct. Thanks for listening.